Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. I consider myself extremely fortunate to have grown up in the 70s and the 80s. We didn't have to wear helmets. We could stay out all day, literally all day. We had adventures of which cannot be named, especially with parents in the room. We, we had things like pine cones being tossed through car windows as they drove by. We, they know about that one. We had kids knocked out from pillow fights. We jumped off of things into pools that we had no, no reason to jump off of, no good excuse to jump off of. We, we rode our bikes like they were armored tanks. The fact that I am alive today is miraculous in and of itself. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, you, you learned to survive <laughs> if you were a kid. And if you make it to 50 like I have, kudos to you. It's amazing that you've made it this far because it was a whole different time. It's amazing that multiple times I didn't die or lose a limb. I could have sworn there were numerous times I was going to definitely lose a friend or a sibling. But nothing said incredible safety like the bus of bicycles the banana seat. If you don't know what a banana seat bicycle is, you really haven't lived. You could fit the whole neighborhood on that thing. A banana seat was this long, elongated seat. It was also known as something else for guys, but we won't go there. This long seat where you could pack all of your buddies on there, like your whole crew could be on this bike. And if you had pegs, you had another guy on the very back standing on the pegs, holding on to the guy in the back of the seat, and then you had someone sitting on your handlebars. It was a death trap, and I survived it. There were a lot of those moments in my life where it was like, whew, (laughs) that's a relief. Or, whew, that's a relief mom and dad didn't find out about that one. I don't know how many times we came to near death, but it was quite a few. One in particular was when my cousin and I were climbing an oak tree. We were at my grandmother's house, and she had this oak tree that was so large, the, the bottom limb was, a, I don't know, as a kid it felt like it was 20 feet in the air. It was probably more like 10 feet in the air, but we couldn't reach it. So luckily, my grandmother had a cement fix fence next to the tree that you could get on the top of, climb over, uh, the, walk along the top of this cement, this, this cement wall that was about this wide. And you could walk on it and then get to the tree and jump up and grab on it and climb up. So one day, my, my cousin and I were climbing this tree, <clears throat> and my cousin wasn't... Um, well, let's just say he wasn't very coordinated at times. And this was a challenging tree. And as we climbed, we got higher and higher and higher. I, I don't know how high we were. It was at least 20 feet in the, in the, in the air. Uh, 
and we weren't strapped into anything, didn't have helmets on, no, no pads anywhere. It was just us and the tree and life and death. And my cousin went to go to the next level because, you know, you had to kind of scurry around the tree and he missed and he slipped and he fell. And all I remember is seeing, help me, flailing everywhere and ba-doom, he lands on the ground and he can't breathe. He's been, the air has been knocked out of him. I thought he broke every bone in his body. And he laid there like a fish out of water. And I'm looking down at him going, bro, are you okay? And I notice that sticking up between his two armpits right here are stakes. He had missed them. And if back then we had cameras on our phones, or if we even had phones back then, it would have been one of those, oh, i got to take a picture of this moment. There's no way that this just happened. Tom literally had two stakes sitting here and here. He fell perfectly, and he was looking up at me, gasping for air, but alive. That's just one of the many moments near-death experiences that I had as a kid that you just go, whew, that's a relief. You okay? All right, maybe we should not climb the tree anymore. And I think we went in and had popsicles or something. I don't know about you, but those moments make you stop and go, golly, that was close. That was a close call. Today we're going to look at a close call with Saul and David. And oh, what a relief this is. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 24. And the story that we're going to be looking at is the whole chapter, but we're not going to cover every verse. Now, David, last we saw, had run from Saul again. And Saul had pursued David, but in his pursuit, he got word that the Philistines had attacked a city. And so now Saul feeling guilty and not wanting David to get the glory, turns around and defeats the Philistines himself with his army. And then we pick it up in verse 1, 1 Samuel 24. You can follow on the screen on your smart device or in your Bible. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness at En Gedi. Now, let me stop here. En Gedi is a place west of the Dead Sea, that sits just off the Dead Sea, and there are, because of the natural geography, very large caves. This is close to where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, very close as a matter of fact. It's also not far from Masada, which is the big hilltop fort for King Herod. So this is in a wilderness where you have the Dead Sea on one side and mountainous a mountainous region on the other side, and in Gedi was this little oasis. And you can actually find pictures of this very place. Well, I don't know what cave this is going to happen in, but this actual place, there's a little stream that runs down, 
and there is green all around this little stream, and everything else is just the rocky desert that's out by the Dead Sea. It's this amazing little oasis in the middle of this mountainous region. And if you go with us to, uh, to Israel next year, uh, we will go close to this place, very close to this place. And so David and his men are hiding out in the, in the caves in this little area that is an oasis where there's nothing else. On one side is a mountainous area with caves in it, what they would have been in, and then it goes down to a little stream and valley that then runs out to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is a big sea of, of deadness out there. And so there's really nothing there. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a weird place to have to hide out, but they find the one place that they could be. So he finds out that, that David is here. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. Now, chosen men would have been the premier uh, warriors. He picked, he picked the elite. These were special forces, more or less. And he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. Now, there's a reason why it's called wild goats' rocks, because there are wild goats, or ibexes, actually, that live in these rocks even till today. They live in the caves. And so it was known that that was the, that that was the case. And so he goes there to seek David, figuring, I bet he's hiding in those caves. And he came to the shepherd's folds, or the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That's exactly what you think it is. Now, here's what's great about this word in Hebrew. Do you want to know what this word literally means in Hebrew? To cover your feet. So think about it. He literally takes his clothes down to cover his feet to relieve himself in a cave. Now, what's important about this is not what he's doing in the cave. He's relieving himself. He's... I don't know, you know, I've had those moments. You ever been in the car and you're like, oh gosh, we need to find a place now. It's one of those moments. King Saul's like, whoa, it's about to happen. I need to get to a cave. So he goes in this cave. What's interesting about this is there's only one thing that his entourage, that his closest protectors, his bodyguards, would not go in and help him with. Only one thing. And it was when he covered up his feet. He is vulnerable. Saul, this man who's been pursuing David, this man who has shown over and over again that he is evil, goes in to use the bathroom and he's by himself because no one wants to be a part of that. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, which in and of itself is bad for David and his men, right? I mean, no one wants to be around that. And they're in the back of the cave, and they're like, oh my gosh, that's Saul. Oh gosh, that's Saul. <laughs> but it's this opportunity. 
And they're sitting in the innermost part of this very cave that he shows up in. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of the, which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as you seem good to, as shall seem good to you. <clears throat> then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, I don't want to know the logistics of this. But I don't want to be David in any part of this. But David stealthily walks up to the guy as he's relieving himself and cuts a corner of his... Guys, this is a weird story. Does any of, do y'all not appreciate how amazingly weird and funny and 13-year-old boyish this is? So he sneaks up stealthily. Ugh. Cuts a corner of his robe off and retreats back into the cave. Now, I'm going to explain why that's important in a minute. The corner of the robe part. And afterwards, David's heart was struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He felt guilty about doing that to the king. So even though this king is trying to kill him, this one little act of actual mercy, David felt bad about. It kind of shows you the type of person that David was. He cared so much about Saul, this man who was trying to kill him, and so much about Saul as king that even cutting off his robe seemed bad to him. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should go do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing his the Lord's anointed. <clears throat> so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. I would like to think that I was as disciplined as David. I would like to think that if the man who was trying to kill me was right there and all I had to do is come up and slit his throat, I would like to think that I would have had the restraint not to. But this guy has murdered a whole city. He's wiped out all the priests in the land except one. This guy has committed atrocities over and over and over again. He is evil and is shown to choose evil, but David refused. David refused. He knew that it wasn't the right thing to do. Now his men, as we saw in this last verse, didn't think that was the case. And this word for persuaded actually is a word that means he berated them. What do you mean I should have killed this guy? How dare you tell me what I should do to the king? David was not about to take part in this. It was nowhere in his, in his consciousness. He, he could not do it and refused to do it, even though the opportunity was there. So Saul leaves the cave, and after Saul leaves the cave, David walks out, verse 8, and says, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage and David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave, 
And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And he shows him the robe. Now, the significance of this is that the hem of the robe would have been very specific to each king. So, when he came out with a piece of material, it wouldn't have been just any material that any king would wear. It was the very material that this king wore. It was Saul's cloak, and it would have been unmistakable as Saul's cloak. So that Saul couldn't look at it and go, that's not mine. They would actually cut the hem of their robe in the material if they were sending a messenger and they wanted the messenger to be believed. See, this is part of my robe I'm sending with this messenger to let you know that I am the one sending this messenger. It was very much a part. It's almost like a signet ring in the wax. It was, this is my mark. So David takes Saul's mark and says, see Saul, see what I could have done for you or to you but I refuse to. I spared you because I will not put out my hand against my Lord if he is the Lord's anointed. David, even in this situation, saw that Saul was called and set apart by God. And he said, listen, you are listening to all these people telling you that I'm trying to hurt you. If I wanted to hurt you, I would have. Verse 11, see my fathers, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may now know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Then, an important verse, verse 12, may the Lord, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you but my hand shall not be against you. In other words, the battle belongs to the Lord. I'm not taking this matter in my own hand. Now imagine the relief that Saul felt after he had relieved himself, and he looks up and he sees that he could have been killed while he was relieving himself, and what a relief that must have been for him. He looks up and he's like, oh my goodness, it was that moment I looked down at Tom and I'm like, oh my goodness, you almost died. That's really cool, bro. But you didn't. Let's go get a popsicle. That same kind of relief must have washed over Saul when he saw, man, I could easily be dead right now. But David spared me. And then David goes on to explain why. I spared you because I respect who you are and who God anointed you to be. But I also believe that the battle belongs to the Lord. May God be the one that judges you, not me. Think about how powerful that is. I got to be honest with you. I would want to be the hand of God in judgment at that moment. It would have been easy for David to say, yeah, God delivered Saul into my hands. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to kill him. But he didn't. He didn't because he understood that it wasn't his to do, that God ultimately was the one. He goes on to say in verse 15, in the last statement of David's speech to Saul, May the Lord therefore be judge, 
and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said, David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good where I has repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put you into my hands, or put me into your hands, sorry. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And behold, I know you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your Now, I'm not saying that that wouldn't be the case had David taken Saul's life. But it might not have been the case had David taken Saul's life. Because in the natural sequence of things, Jonathan, Saul's son, would have been the next in line. And the people that saw what David did to Saul would have said, No, we don't, we don't choose David because David killed the king. He's a threat. He's an insurrectionist. So we're going to lift Jonathan up. That could have easily been the response here. But David, fueled by the Spirit, as we've been told time and time again throughout this narrative, chooses, no, this is not my battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let him be the one who brings revenge. I'm not going to be the instrument of death here because God has not given me permission to. I'm not going to take matters into my own hand, even though it appears like, oh yeah, this would be great. This is the easy thing. How many times do we choose the easy? The thing that seems prudent. But David trusted in something bigger. He trusted that the battle belonged to the Lord. He trusted that if it was God's will for him to be king, that he should do nothing to interfere with how God was going to bring it about. How many times do we get over our skis trying to force things to happen instead of waiting on the Lord? How many times do we take matters in our own hand because we know best? How many times do we force the issue but not David. And as relieved as Saul must have been that his life was spared, how hard it would have been and how bitter a pill to swallow that the very one who I hate loves me. That the very one that I want to put to death spared me. That the very one that I fear will take my place has earned my place. Saul's going to get his. It's coming. And it's coming with a vengeance. But David refused to be a part of that. Because he knew it wasn't his. I think we can learn a lot from David, can't we? 
And so the next time you're tempted to take matters in your own hand, to press the issue, to try to make things happen, the next time you want to take revenge yourself, you want to fight back or bite back or spread rumor back, the next time you want to get at someone and you have the opportunity, stop and take a step back. And say, God, in your will and in your time. And that will be your, that's a relief. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.